Welcome to Virtual Student Experiences, where we inspire students to aspire. For more information, please check out our website at www.virtualstudentexperiences.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Virtual Student Experiences Season 2 webinar. Today's webinar will focus on a very specific medical field, cardiothoracic surgery. If you're new to our program, Virtual Student Experiences is a pro bono initiative spearheaded for students by students. We at Virtual Student Experiences want to be the inspiration for aspiration. Our goal is to give students around the world an opportunity to hear from professionals in the career industry of interest in a friendly and casual setting. If you're a student that knows what you want to do in the future, we at VC want to encourage, allow, and connect you with professionals. Through VSC, students are given the chance to decide if their career of choice fits their skills, personality, as well as overall interests. Through VSC, you'll be able to hear from a wide variety of guests from a variety of seniority levels. To find out more information or to be signed up to be notified about upcoming webinars, you can visit our website at virtualstudentexperiences.com. So before we get started, I just wanted to go over some quick housekeeping things, uh, so hang on tight. Firstly, I'm going to be asking our guest professional that I'll introduce in a second, series of base knowledge questions so that you can get a good idea of who he is and really what he does. If at any time you have a question that you think of, feel free to post it in the Q&A module and we will get to it in the later part of the webinar. We highly recommend that you ask questions during this webinar because it is an opportunity to, do, to get an answer right here, right now, instead of reading about it later on the internet. And quickly introducing our VSC core team, of volunteers, we have Buddy, Gabby, as well as Jonathan. So for our guest today, we have Dr. Sean Setti. Dr. Setti's extensive medical-centered education began at the Medical College of Ohio. He then continued to learn while participating in a residency at the Oregon Health and Science University. Dr. Setti still continued sharpening his skills, however, while attending the University of Minnesota Medical School Lily High Heart Institute, where he vigorously advanced his knowledge of cardiothoracic surgery. Dr. Seti then partook in a fellowship where he studied congenital heart surgery at Royal Children's Hospital. His triple board certification served him well as he quickly landed a job at Oshner Health System as a congenital heart surgeon for both adults as well as kids. He now occupies positions as the medical director of pediatric and adult congenital heart cardiac surgery at Memorial Care Long Beach Medical Center, where he also acts as the chief of cardiothoracic surgery. So thank you for joining us today, Mr. Seti. Absolutely, happy to be here. Right, so just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about really what cardiothoracic surgery is and maybe as well as what congenital heart surgery is? Yeah, absolutely. So cardiothoracic surgery is just kind of a general term for any surgery that's done in the chest. So the cardio part of it is the heart and the thoracic is the other organ. So that can be the lungs or the esophagus. So anything that occupies the chest. And so there's different fields of cardiothoracic surgery. Um, as time goes on, there's more specializations in cardiothoracic surgery. There's little niches people are taking. So that's, that's kind of a, a general term. And so then people will talk about being an adult cardiac surgeon, and that's maybe what you see on TV when people get their valves either repaired or replaced or have a, bi a so-called bypass surgery for to fix blocked coronary arteries. Um, the congenital part comes of it um, with kids or adults that were actually born with a congenital defect. So congenital defect of the heart, so we call it congenital heart disease, 
um, is the largest amount is the largest um, congenital issue that babies have. So under just under one percent of babies will have a congenital heart disease. So you think of one in a hundred will have a congenital heart disease. So what happens there is when the babies are being formed, their heart doesn't form normally. And so there's lots of different um, ways their heart can not develop normally. And that's what we specialize in. So yes, the majority of our patients are in kids, but adults can get it um, diagnosed later. Um, some adults will need additional procedures later. So it kind of goes from what we call the neonate, which is a newborn baby all the way into adulthood. Interesting. So, I mean, how did you really get into those fields and where did you really passion or interest for the medical field really begin or start? Yeah, I think, I think everyone's different and this kind of progressed for me over time. And I actually, I actually went into college with a bioengineering major. And so um, later on, it uh, became apparent that, that I like, I like medicine, but the engineering part never really left. And congenital heart disease, when you're reforming these hearts, really has a kind of an engineering tilt to it. And so that's what really got me interested. And the physiology of congenital heart disease is, is very complex and interesting. And so that's kind of what got me um, thinking about it long-term. Right, so moving from kind of like that hybrid of engineering and the medical field, were there really any steps you had to take or maybe requirements that you had to meet in order to get into that medical field from your uh, previous major? Yeah, so the, the way it works is when you go to college, it doesn't matter what degree you have, um, but to get into medical school, you need to have a set um, course list of requirements you have to take. And at least right now, you have to have a medical license or a medical entrance exam you need to take called the MCAT. So no matter what major you are, as long as you take the, the set curriculum of courses and take the MCAT, and then you go into medical school, then that gets you into medical school. And then once you're in medical school, so that's four years, once you're in medical school, then you decide what specialty you want to go in. And that's when you go into what's called a residency. And then from there, you can specialize in a lot of different fields. My, my specialty required me to do several, it required me to do a few residencies and then an extra fellowship. So it, that, the years definitely add on. Right. So, I mean, I guess adding on to that, what, what role did those fellowships and residencies really play into your success today? So in, in order to actually do what we do, you need to actually do those residencies and fellowships. You can't, you can't not do them and get to where you want to be. So if I want to be a um, liver surgeon, I have to go through that training. I have to go through that specialization. And after that point, after you completed it, then you take the tests to get you so you've passed it. And when we say we're board, board certified, that means we've actually pass those tests for those things. So like for this field, I passed it in general surgery, then I passed it in cardiothoracic surgery, and then I passed it in congenital heart surgery. So those are the steps you need to take in order to get to where you wanna be. Very cool. So, I mean, I guess it's really a lot of practice as well as preliminary education to really be successful, really to practice medicine. So, I mean, I guess how important is it really to go to a named school or to really get good grades? Is one better than the other or do you really need both of them? 
Yeah, I guess, you know, I probably think about this differently. I don't really think about the name of the school. I think about what you've achieved in that school. And, and you know, nobody's going to tell you that grades don't matter. Nobody's going to tell you that those things don't matter. But in, at the end of the day, you know, they try to standardize it with this test called the MCAT. So, you know, you can go to different schools, but that MCAT is kind of their... Um, Kind of their guide and 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 when what the person's done but i'm i'm a my my thought process is that it's what you do in school it's not the school you go to right if that makes sense yeah and then i guess what goals should medical students have while uh doing either residencies or fellowships or maybe going to medical school what should they really aim or strive for so I think the biggest thing is through, I, I always feel like you should be, have an open mind. You know, there's some people when they're little, they know what they want to do. You know, I want to be a neurosurgeon. But, but the truth of the matter is we have so many people, even when they go to college, they think they want to do something and you really think they think they know what they want to do, but it changes over time. So I think people should have an open mind. We've had so many people in medical school thinking they wanted to do something and they ended up in a completely different field because you actually don't know what's out there. We, we think we do, but then we go through something that really clicks and really, you know, we feel passionate about. So I just always tell people to have an open mind and just look at things with, uh, you know, those big broad eyes because you don't know what you're gonna like and what you're not gonna like. Sometimes what you think you're gonna like, you actually don't. So that's kind of the way it works. And then, yeah, medical students um, should make a decision in their later years, the third and the fourth year but some of them still don't know what they want to do. So there's different avenues for, for, for those individuals. They can do something called a preliminary year where they maybe just try uh, um, you know, surgery for a year or they try medicine for a year. Um, and then they can you know, have an extra year to kind of decide what they want to do. So it's, it's, it's very broad. Some people are very focus driven, kind of know what they want to do and other people are trying to figure it out. Cool. Um, and then I guess going into your experience now, can you really talk about a little bit about your time with the Oshner Health System? Yeah, that was one of the, that was, uh, it was a very interesting time because, you know, Hurricane Katrina had gone through, Oshner Health System is in New Orleans. Um, it was really a neat time to be a professional living in New Orleans because you were kind of building it back up from um, at post Katrina. And it wasn't just Katrina, it was the rest of the state too. And, and so that health system really helped uh, mitigate any of the congenital heart issues, not only in that, in that state, but states around it. So we're able to kind of come in there, restart this, really take care of patients who needed the help, um, start a heart transplant program there. We, you know, we did one of the first pediatric heart transplants in that state. And so it was actually a great time to be in New Orleans. And it's just kept progressing from there. And that health system's become, um, you know, a really major force. Cool. I mean, it seems like you have had experience or maybe even practice in Australia as well as uh, New Orleans and Los Angeles. So how do maybe the healthcare systems differ and how may, might they be similar as well? Yeah, that's a great question, Beckett. I think, um, you know, one of the big reasons I actually went to Australia is I think we get pigeonholed sometimes into thinking that the best stuff is, you know, just here in the United States or in, in other civilized um, or very civilized countries. But the truth of the matter is a lot of people are doing good work um, all over the place. And Australia is 
interesting in that it's nationalized healthcare. So everyone has healthcare um, and they really have little pods of specialty centers. So like the center I went to at that time was, a, was one of the major congenital heart uh, programs in the whole country. So all the complex stuff came in there and you got to see really a different uh, a viewpoint of medicine. And it actually was great because nationalized healthcare, everyone had healthcare. You weren't worrying about someone, you know, not being able to get care and, and not only as like for surgery, but for everything else too. Um, so it was actually a great year for, for me to kind of see how things were done differently. Um, within our country, I think, um, you know, different places do different things, but, but the, the gist of it is pretty, pretty, much this, pretty much the same. I mean, California works a little bit different than Louisiana. That's going to work a little bit different than, you know, Massachusetts. And so there's little differences, but, but I think the whole thing is pretty much the same. Great. Um, so coming really kind of back to Hurricane Katrina, how do current events really play into your work? Like, do certain seasons have more um, congen congenital heart failures, like stuff like that? Do current events really play into the number of patients you have to see? So, you know, the way, the way it works for us is there's so many different kinds of anatomies that we see. And some of them you fix it and, you know, that's it. You don't think they're going to have anything else again. There's some that we know they're going to come back because they need something else done. And so the way it works for us is a lot of our critical patients are babies that are born. And so we don't, we don't have um, any control over when a baby is going to be born and when we need to do something. But there are patients that need other things done. Like let's say they need a valve placed in a certain area and they're going to school. We'll do those in the summer just because it's, they're out of school. They don't have to miss school and they can, they can recover and be well for the next year. So there's different things at different times, but for kind of what we do, it kind of depends on, you know, when the presentation is there, there's not really a season for it. Right. Right. So can you also speak a little bit, about your current roles at the Memorial Care at Long Beach Medical Center? Yeah, so, so here I'm medical director of the Pediatric and Adult Congenital Cardiac Surgical Service. Um, so that just kind of deals with what we were just talking about, being a, being a congenital heart surgeon here and doing all the things you need to do to build that program um, with our peers and our colleagues. You know, we work with a lot of different physicians. We work with anesthesia doctors. Those are the doctors that put patients to sleep um, so we can do the procedures. We work with cardiologists that are the medical doctors that help see these patients and diagnose them. Um, we work with ICU doctors that help take care of the patients after they've had um, a procedure like this. We work with all the nursing and all the OR staff, um, as well as our administration. So all of those things really need to um, play nicely and play well so we can actually get things done the way we need to get them done. So that's kind of our, our program here, but there's lots of other things in the hospitals that we do. Um, being chief of the section just means there's other sections other than congenital. There's thoracic and there's adult cardiac. It's just helping them um, get to be where they need to be also. Um, working with the hospital system, um, you know, both at a state and a national level to kind of um, make healthcare better over time. Cool. Um, so you spoke a little bit about how much collaboration and communication there really is. So what role does that really play in your day-to-day -day work? 
Yeah, I think, I think probably in most occupations, it's really important to be able to communicate well. It's really um, important to be able to collaborate well. Um, I think you have to have that sense of humility on you also um, that, you know, the rest of the team is just as important as you are. Um, and it's really that teamwork that really makes things happen. And so I think, you know, you can see that in the hospital working well, but, uh, you know, my guess is that's going to be the same theme you're going to see in other professions also. Right. And you also mentioned how you're the director of a program uh, at the hospital. So what, how do you maintain good leadership and what do you view as a good leader? Yeah, so that's, um, you know, a good leader has a different definition for different people and maybe even a different definition at different times. And so you, be, you need to be able to stand up for what you believe in, um, but at the same time, you need to be able to make those around you better. So that's, that's what I, I think a good leader really makes the people around them better. Um, for what I do, it really makes the patients the focus of everything. And so it's really easy to make some of the decisions because it's like whatever's best for the patient coming in. And so I think that's what you need to do. But you really also, uh, I think it's especially for what we do, you really need to stand up for what's right. And I think if you do that as a leader and you take care of the people around you, that, you know, it's a win-win situation. Right. So, I mean, I guess adding on to that, what values do most doctors have or most medical professionals have? What beliefs or, like I said before, values should they, do they normally hold? Yeah, so obviously everyone's different, right? You can't uh, throw everyone in, in, in one bucket, but I would, I would think uh, in the healthcare field, I really think compassion is really one of the big values you need to have. I mean, that drives everything you do and how you do it. I think that's one of the big things. I mentioned it before, but I think humility is also good. There's, there's always people that may know something that you don't. Um, and, and, you know, those, those are the two kind of drivers that I think I would hope that most physicians would have. Um, but then it also depends what, what, what you do, right? You need to have different skill sets for whatever type of physician you are. Right. Um, I guess the next question I really have is how do you continue to make progress and how do you continue to move forward uh, throughout your years of work? Yeah, so that's the thing with, um, you know, medicine and a lot of other professions is you never stop learning. You know, you think you've learned it all, but it's, you learn on a daily basis. And I don't think that ever stops. You know, you probably still learning at the time that you're retiring. And, and so I think closing those windows too early is probably not a good idea. You always have to have your eyes open, you know, the technology and the information and science it, it's a rapidly progressing field, right? Every year there's something new and there's all these, you know, cool things that are happening out there. And I think that's the one allure to, to maybe students looking at healthcare as a, um, as, as a potential field is that it's never ending and never stopping. And there's technology that goes with it. I mean, one thing I can talk about with technology, you know, 10, 10 years ago, um, if you would have mentioned that, you know, robots would help us do surgery, you know, people would laugh at you, but robots are helping us do surgery. We do some things where we actually control the robots, um, but we're able to do stuff um, through smaller incisions, um, faster recovery, all those type of things. So you're seeing like, you know, the technology field of ro robotic uh, innovation, you know, merging with the healthcare field. And I think we're going to see more and more of that as time goes on in the future. You're going to see a lot of those fields actually combining to do something. Right. 
So, I mean, I guess what are the biggest challenges that you face at your job and how do you overcome those obstacles or I guess adversity? Yeah, there's lots of challenges, I think, now. I mean, we, um, you know, we just went through a big challenge, as did the rest of the world with, with COVID-19, right? It's seeing how do you navigate that? How do you go through quarantines? How do you go through restrictions when you still have patients that need care? Um, so it's, I think we just went through a really big challenge with that. I think what we're going to see is we're going to see healthcare change. I think we're going to see a lot of things change, but healthcare will change in the future. I think this is going to force a change. I think there's always financial um, obligations that hospital systems and healthcare systems need to be able to fulfill. So it's being able to do what we're doing now and be, you know, smart with it from a dollars and cents perspective. So I think there's going to be a lot of changes going forth from this. And is this change, do you think it's going to be uh, a good productive change or what kind of change do you really see? Should we embrace this change? And how will uh, people or patients have to adapt to this really change in the healthcare system? Yeah, great question. So I think there's a couple of things. I think um, sometimes you have change, but and you're forced into it. Like we don't have a choice. We don't have a choice saying, should we do, should we not? We, we have to do it. And then I think when you have those times, then you want to make it positive, right? You want it to be for a good thing. So yes, I do think there's going to be a lot of positive changes. Um, something we're doing right now, right? We're talking over this, uh, we're talking over Zoom, right? Or we're talking over televideo. And, and, you know, beforehand, doctors were kind of ambivalent about that. Like, you know, I can't see my patient, but what did we have to do when COVID-19 came? We, a lot of doctors, this is, this is their only way they could actually communicate with their patients. And it's been such a positive thing that, you know, doctors and patients are saying, hey, this actually wasn't as bad as we thought it was going to be. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the future. So what will that do? That can help reduce costs. You know, some of these patients, it's really hard for them to get to a clinic because they may not have transportation or, you know, they may have limited mobility. And so this is like, this is a, really a godsend for them. So I think we're going to see changes like that. I think the, the parts that, you know, were hard is that some patients who did need care and maybe were too afraid to come to the hospital did have something happen to them. So they couldn't make to the hospital. So people were a little bit scared, but I think we'll, we'll find kind of like a middle ground with all of this. And I think, you know, I think the thing that I see with COVID-19 is that it's not just a limited to one area, it's the whole world that's going through this. And so we need to be able to help each other and we shouldn't, you know, put those walls up like, you know, you know, this is us and that's them. It's really an international thing that we all have to go through and we just need to help each other through it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of cool how there's so many technological advances now and especially because of Zoom and different platforms that we've had to embrace, uh, especially with education. It's cool because now, like you said before, we are talking uh, over the computer and this would never happen if uh, the pandemic never occurred. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I think a lot of things are going to change, right? Businesses and conferences and you're seeing some of these guys at these tech companies now they don't really have to go in, right? They figured out that they can actually do a lot of things remotely. So I think there's going to be changes, you know, across the board. Right. Um, I mean, I guess what are the really, your top three skills that you use every day in your, in your work? Yeah. So, um, you know, this, 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 the skills really have to do with, with the profession. And so in my work really, I mean, you really, the skills have to also do with, um, 
what you're doing for that day. So obviously, you know, we need to be really technically facile with what we do. And so those skills were, they, they, they just didn't come up. They, you had to build them over all those years. All that training we, we had talked about, um, that's really where your skill comes. So as a surgeon, I think one of your biggest skills is your technical ability, right? So, so, so that's one of them. But at the same time, you know, you need to be compassionate. Uh, you need to be responsible. You need to be a good leader. Um, so all of those things, um, you know, they, they come in all, all the time, you know, le leadership is also in the operating room also. So all of those things um, we use all the time. Right. It really comes down to those hard and soft skills and the combat compatibility between the, the two of them. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess what did a typical day look like for you before the coronavirus pandemic and how has that really changed and adapted? Yeah, so for, for me, because of what I do and because you're never gonna have to stop doing surgery on patients who have congenital heart disease, we always have it all the way through. So that never stopped. And even when hospitals kind of shut down a lot of what they did, we still had babies being born with what we considered critical congenital heart de defects that needed to go to the operating room and get those things done. But for patients who could wait, they waited. And so, you know, the volume, I think, across the whole um, country went down over that time for surgeries. And so patients did wait and then we waited um, in the initial parts and then we were able to, to get those done um, early on in the summer. Um, but there are still patients and families who are still afraid to come to the hospital. Right. Um, I guess what specific courses or what maybe clubs should aspiring surgeons take to maybe advance their knowledge and preparation of going to medical school. Yeah, so if if you um, if you want to be a doctor and you're in college, you know it probably isn't a bad idea to figure out actually what they do. And I, I guarantee you that the, the, the TV shows don't show it the, the same way that it actually is. But maybe you want to go volunteer at a hospital, right? You can actually kind of see how what what happens, and then maybe you get to see a couple different specialties, so you can compare the two and you know get that in that in interest but in terms of the clubs there's probably always there's always clubs that are geared towards medicine and it kind of helps you but if you truly want to see like what the hospital is is about that's one of those things because you have to remember too it's not just always about being a doctor there's all these other professions out there right people can go you know a nursing route people can go into these ancillary support staff routes there's all these different things, there's physical therapy, occupational therapy, all these different things that a hospital holds. So even if they don't wanna quote unquote be a doctor, there's so many different things they can do to really contribute. Cool. Um, and then I guess a question about mentorship. Do you really have a mentor and what, if you had a mentor or still have one, what role do or did they play and what role do they continue to play? Yeah, so it's really interesting. I mean, most of us have, um, you know, we, we've had some sort of mentors through our training. Otherwise, you wouldn't have gotten where you need to be. Um, different people have different types of mentors. Some people still keep in touch with them and, you know, are really close with them. I, I never had that type of mentor that was actually, you know, that type of person. But through every single one of my training programs, you know, you always have people that, you know, you look at them and say, oh, you know, they do these things well. I, I would like to kind of emulate those things or, 
um, you know, maybe you come up with a really hard diagnosis you have and you can just pick up the phone and be able to call, call someone and say, hey, have you ever seen this before? And so I think mentors come in different sizes and shapes and um, it's, it's kind of what you need from them. Um, I, I didn't have that one true mentor that, you know, caught me through. I just kind of um, had those individual ones through those time periods. But saying that, I do think a mentor is, is really important. Um, if you can identify one and, you know, someone takes you under their wing to kind of help you through some of this stuff, it's fantastic. I think, um, I, I think that's what a lot of us are trying to do now. I think, you know, surgery in the past has always been, you know, it, you know, people have a different image of it now. But I think what we like to do, because there's not actually that many people who do what, what I do. And so it's actually getting the next kind of the next uh, group of people ready for that. So you want to be able to, to spread that knowledge to them too. Cool. Um, and then I guess finally, what are some final words of wisdom or what are some suggestions that you might have for aspiring surgeons? So I, you know, for, I would say words of wisdom for aspiring students in general, doesn't matter what you want to do. Just, just have, um, just keep your options open. I mean, I went in to college, you know, really wanting to do engineering. Um, and I can tell you, I, there's so many people who came in um, wanting to be pre-med that did something completely different. So I would say keep your options open. I think you really have to do what you're passionate about. Um, and, and that will become clear over time. You know, certain people have different, um, you know, different goals when it, when it kind of comes into college. And I can tell you first couple of years, um, those goals aren't going to be there, but things really, you know, gel af after a while. So I would just say, keep your options open, keep your eyes open. You may want to go in a completely different field. Um, and so that's okay. There's lots of people who go to medical school who aren't in a science major, right? So there's people who have done, you know, business, philosophy, economics, all those things. They can go in with that major um, and then maybe say, hey, I want to do medicine. And then they get those core um courses in there and they take the test and they do that but it doesn't you don't have to go in as a science major to go into medicine actually to tell you the truth sometimes it's good to have that to not be a science major going to medicine because you have a whole different perspective of it great also thank you for answering our questions at vsc and now we'll answer the questions in the q a module so if yeah. you have any questions uh for dr seti uh, feel free to post them in the q a now um, first question is, what are some classes that I can take to lay down a good foundation for a career in the medical field? Yeah, so in college, you're going to take your biology courses, you're going to take all your science courses, physics, um, you're going to take, you're going to have certain um, math requirements also. Um, and so there's a course list that you take, but it's going to be very, I think, science oriented, but not completely science oriented. Um, so once you have those curriculums, you know, what I would say is if you were truly interested in this, you would meet with your guidance counselor early on and say, okay, this is how I'm going to set up my class schedule. These are the courses I need to take. And this is what I need to do to take the entrance exam for medical school um, called the MCAT. Um, that, that is pretty much standard anywhere. Cool. Um, and then second question is where do you really see technology taking the medical field in the future? So it's amazing what's happened in such a short amount of time. And we touched upon the robotic stuff um, that can be done, but um, 
it's amazing. So like beforehand, we could only put in valves by doing an open surgery. Now there's um, there are valves actually in one of the valve positions called the aortic valve is very routinely being done through arteries in the groin. So they put a, a small, what we call a sheath in there and they can actually put valves in that way. And so um, you think about that, you, you know, patients who previously maybe had to have an open heart surgery and undergo this are now getting it put in through an artery in their groin and getting valves placed that way. And so there's, you know, there's four main valves to the heart and I can say in two of them, you know, it's become pretty routine to do them. And the other two, those, those advances are actually starting now. We're actually getting the first valves getting put in those positions too. So, you know, there's a, um, that's just one example of many. You know, I'm just talking about the heart. I'm not even talking about other parts of the body. Um, you know, it used to be that you would have to go get an artificial knee, maybe put in a little called knee replacement. Um, from getting arthritis after a while and you know patients will stay in the hospital for multiple days and now a lot of these patients will get it done and go home the same day um, because they're being able to be done smaller type incisions um, there's better um, control for discomfort afterwards so all these things are really really changing and technology we're just talking about those things but we haven't even talked about um, technology that can be used to diagnose some problems you have and so there's a lot of different things being done right now. So it's actually, like I said, I think you're gonna see a lot of these fields really coming together more than they already are. That's very interesting. Um, so I guess the next question is, if you want to be involved in medicine, but not be a doctor, what options do you have? You have lots of different options. So we, we talked about, um, you know, let's just go through a, some of those things. So if you look at a hospital, you know, you can be an administrator, you don't even have to be in the science field. You can be a hospital administrator. Um, you could be a nurse. You could work in the operating room as an operating nurse. Um, you can be um, what we call, we have a lot of techs here who work with some of the biomedical equipment um, in the hospital. Um, for what I do, um, heart surgery, we actually have a specialist called a perfusionist who actually runs the heart lung machine so we can actually do these surgeries. Um, so you look at that, there's so many different things um, just within the hospital in and of itself. And then let's look outside of the hospital. So we have all of these companies that make these products that we use, right? So you can be a rep for either like a pharmaceutical company, for a device company, for all of those things. So you're looking, looking at that whole aspect of it. And then what about what we're doing today? You have all of the IT people who work to really make things happen in the hospital. So it's... Uh, it's almost never ending. You can still be involved in quote unquote healthcare or medicine and be in a completely different field. That's really cool how uh, different paths, I guess, cross over in a sense. Absolutely. So, I mean, what is your work-life balance like? Yeah, that's a hard thing being, being a cardiac surgeon. I, I think, you know, you know, historically, you know, people would say, oh, I never go home. And I never do this stuff. But I think it's what, whatever your priorities are. You got to set those priorities for yourself. Um, Work-life balance as a surgeon may not be as good as, you know, some of the other fields in, um, in medicine because a lot of the things we do are critical, acute. We need to sometimes rush into the hospital. Sometimes our cases are long and we need to stay here late. Um, so all, all that depends. But I think you need to, the individual needs to kind of set their limits for their work-life balance. I mean, personally for me, um, you know, the family is, that is really important. And you need to actually 
fit those into how you're going to do, do things. It's always easy to say, you know, I was too busy. Um, but the reality is that that comes back on you. There's always going to be those times that you are going to be too busy. Um, but there's also going to be those times when you're not as busy. And so that's up to the person to actually create their own work-life balance. Right. It comes down to really your priorities and I guess what you really want to make time for. Right. Um, and then finally, uh, do you recommend medicine as a career and why or why not? No, I, I recommend people do whatever they're passionate in. I, I think medicine's always been a great career because it's it's really nice to be able to, I mean, you know, people laugh when they say when medicine's oh, to help people. There's lots of fields that help people, but I think when you're helping people in that time when they're so vulnerable um, and it's critical, right? You're talking about doing something to somebody that, uh, um, you know, is a little bit scary. And so... I think it's a great field. It's never going to go away. I think there's advances in it. You could always make someone's life better. Um, but there's a lot of other professions you can do that in too. So I think it comes from within. If you're passionate about it, then absolutely you should do it. Cool. So that's all the questions we really have for you today. Thank you very much, Dr. Steady, for taking the time to really talk with us here at VSC. We appreciate your insight as well as experienced perspective that you were able to share with us here today. And we're sure that the students who were not able to make it today and will view this later uh, will greatly appreciate uh, what you've shared with us today. So sure. for students, thank you for joining us today. If you're interested in hearing about future webinars uh, or other maybe workshops that we do, you can check out our website at virtualstudentexperiences.com and sign up to be on our email list. Thank you again, uh, Dr. Sadi, for joining us today. Happy to be here, thank you. Mm -hmm.